Hello and welcome to another episode of Future of Tax, the KPMG podcast series for tax leaders. For today's episode, we'll look specifically at how the latest BEPS inclusive framework developments are playing out in the asset management space. For this episode and to lead this discussion, I'm pleased to pass the reins over to Dave Newmanhaus, Global Leader, Asset Management, KPMG International, who is in discussion with Sam Reisenberg, Principal, Washington National Tax, International Tax, KPMG in the US, and Eric Janowak, Managing Director and Deputy Global Lead, Sovereign Wealth and Pension Funds Tax, KPMG Lower Gulf. Over to you, Dave. Thanks for that introduction. This is a really exciting and and truly global topic, and we want to make sure we have appropriate global coverage on this call, which we do. So maybe, guys, I'll just ask you each to uh, introduce where you're dialing in from, Sam, maybe starting with you. So hi, uh, everybody. Sam Riesenberg. I sit in London uh, and work very closely with with Dave and and Eric on, on these kind of global matters, but as a member of the U.S. firm. Sure. And Eric? I'm based in Abu Dhabi, and I cover the Middle East for KPMG in the U.S. and work closely with Dave and Sam as well. Thanks, guys. So let's jump in now. As we typically see with these big policy reform initiatives, we, we certainly start with the, the blueprint and some early some early releases around the OECD BEPS Pillar 2. Um, the rules don't always consider the specific nuances that are institutional investor and broader asset management ecosystem clients are, are concerned about. And I'll say over the years since their initial releases, there, there've been, there's been a lot of work in that regard, and the rules are, are quite a bit clearer in terms of their potential application to, to managers and investors and funds. Our observation, though, has been that we might have lost a few folks from different segments and different taxpayers due to, I'd say, some level of fatigue and, and frustration at keeping up with the rules as they evolve. But a big point of this call and our ongoing discussions are that it's really time for the industry to, to take some steps and, and jump back in. And so maybe, Sam, for those that might have stepped away from the the discussion on a day-to-day basis, maybe turn to you and you could share a little bit just back to the basic principles of what these rules are really looking to establish from a policy perspective. Yeah, sure. So this is all about the digitalization of the global economy and how we deal from that from a tax perspective where you're customers in one jurisdiction and and maybe the the profits are allocable to another jurisdiction uh, and you know in the first version of the BEPS project announced and put together in 2015 they they kind of kicked the can down the road a little bit on some of these digitalization issues cuz they're they're difficult issues to to wrap your head around and require a lot of very specific coordination they picked that back up in the middle of 2021 to say, okay, now we're ready to deal with this. And this is really the framework that we're going to do, which is this two pillar concept. Pillar one, really dealing with the, you know, the digital economy and how multinational groups need to have, you know, the global customer base and, and need to have their, their profits in certain jurisdictions. And, and then pillar two, really digging down on smaller issues, a 750 million euro cap rather, and or do they have the right you know, taxation frameworks to harmonize the global taxation of the economy in a way that'll allow them to ensure the, the appropriate taxation of, of the, this income that, that is otherwise you know, free to, to, to be in different jurisdictions. Thanks for that, Sam. So good, good to kind of keep in mind what we're, what we're shooting for here. Another challenge I would say is that the OECD, while it's, it's, it's a group of countries that come together to come to some agreement and really importantly in this space, you know, minimum taxation, but ultimately the rules are left to the local jurisdictions to implement, right? And so that's another level of complexity and I'd say uncertainty over the years in terms of 
how each country might adopt these rules, you know, fit for purpose with respect to their 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 own tax codes, their own tax policies. Maybe I'll turn to you, Eric. What are we seeing from a local adoption perspective throughout the Middle East and other countries that you work with? Yeah, it's a really interesting space. You know, one really big uh, development is with the UAE, which has announced uh, a corporate tax. Previously, it didn't have one, and the legislation hasn't been released, but the government has announced that a corporate tax will be implemented in 2023 at a headline rate of 9%. And based on what we know, with some of the promulgations released from the government here in the United Arab Emirates, it's pretty well understood that there's going to be a likely top-up tax that'll apply to uh, multinational enterprises that are within scope of Pillar 2. And so it's it's really a um, in support of global minimum tax and the Pillar 2 initiative under BEPS that the UAE is participating. It, it's likely that we're going to have some corporate tax announcement from Bahrain as well, although that hasn't been made public yet. Saudi Arabia has a corporate tax of 20%. Qatar has a, a corporate tax of 10%. Oman has a corporate tax of 15%. And so the UAE and Bahrain will soon be part of that club as well. So Eric, you mentioned top-up tax, and that is a, a uh, I guess, a, you know, a, a specific term in the, in, the, in the context of this. And that is essentially just to bring up the tax in a local jurisdiction to the that minimum rate of 15%. And it's, I don't know if it's an unintended consequence or or an intended consequence, but I th- we're seeing, I'm seeing, you know, a number of countries that had had a zero rate of tax say, look, we might as well collect the 15% tax for our coffers rather than allow somebody up the chain collect that 15% because ultimately it's it's got to be collected. Interesting that it's happening in the Middle East. Sam, are, are you seeing any you know similar developments or other developments as countries try to figure out how to uh, adopt these rules? I think that's right. Tax competition, if you will, is not limited to places with zero tax. There's certainly places with, with tax rates lower than 15% that are trying to, to struggling to figure out exactly how to implement these rules, bring up their tax rates, you know, and, and contemplate how to, to harmonize their, their you know, exemption deduction systems and CFC systems, to mention one important one from the US, to harmonize with these rules. So I think we're, we're seeing a lot of different issues, and as you said before, Dave, one issue we're certainly going to see going forward is the implementation. Let's assume we get to an agreement on this. The implementation phase is just going to result in differentiation, and there's going to be a lot of work that's going to come out of that piece as well. We're not going to just end up flick a switch and have just a harmonized system where the rules in one you know jurisdiction work in the other. We've seen this you know, with the implementation, for example, of, of ATAD, you know, one, two rules in, in Europe, for example, an intended harmonization that, that's just taking time to, to work out with the various nuances we see in different jurisdictions. Right. And as uh, particularly acute issue for our clients who happen to have, you know, assets around the globe in many instances, and unlike a strategic company where there's a, a single governance, a single head of tax that cascades through the business, oftentimes we've got different portfolio companies, each with their own policies in their own countries, their own systems for collection of the data really, really gets complicated, which leads to the, the, the next point we want to touch on that share with the folks. Asset management is is really an ecosystem, right? If you, if you double click on it, you, you quickly see we have the investor class, the institutions, sovereigns and pensions, right? We've got the funds and, and their managers. 
and we've got the portfolio companies, not to mention any number of administrators, custodians, et cetera, right? So it's a really complicated ecosystem, different than the strategic space. And so maybe we just spend a minute on, on each of those levels just to kind of raise the issues we're seeing, what folks are uh, uh, can anticipate as they as they jump back into these rules. Eric, maybe we start with you from the top down, let's say, from the from the investor perspective. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the question is, is the investor within scope of the rules? You know, the, the starting point is, has it earned more than 750 million euros of annual revenue for the rules? You look over the, the prior four years to make that determination. And if yes, then you could be within scope of pillar two. And then you look through to see whether there's a particular exclusion that might apply to you. And so when you look at the sovereigns, you know, they could be an excluded entity under the termination of being treated as a, a governmental investor. Interestingly, the rules that apply to the government investors that sovereigns could potentially meet the definition for are really very similar to the, the definitional requirements under Section 892. So if you're a Section 892 investor, it's highly likely that you're also going to be treated as an excluded entity under the, the Pillar 2 definitions. And then as it turns out, there's a, a further exclusion that applies to essentially the SPVs or hold codes or, or blockers for that sovereign. When we look at the sovereigns in this space, it's it's really falling into two camps. You have the sovereigns that are primarily comprised of a portfolio of minority interests and uh, investment funds that don't consolidate. And then you have a camp of the sovereigns that have controlling interests in funds and companies that they do consolidate in their financials. And thus, those companies are potentially treated as constituent entities. And if that's the case, you, you fall back into the Pillar 2 rules, and you're likely going to have not only filing obligations, either at the constituent entity level or at the sovereign level, the, uh, the, the ultimate parent entity, as it's known. And in addition to that, potential top-up tax uh, that needs to be collected under the IAR, or at least tax that's at risk under the undertaxed payments rule. And so at this point, it's probably likely that the sovereign wants to do an assessment to see how the pillar two rules are going to apply to their portfolio, which leads to a question of, you know, what's the best approach in determining who has the filing obligations and where is the tax likely to be due? Right. So Eric, you, you said a bunch there. The 892, of course, is reference to a U.S. tax code, which is a, a privilege that different investors have should they qualify and, and, and largely not conduct commercial activities and, and in general be part of a part of a foreign government. Right. And some specific yeah, rules appears there. Yeah. And so there are some carve outs, as you mentioned. I, I think that some of the challenges, hey, do we qualify? Right. If you if you read the headline law, it just based on a sovereign investor. Look, sounds like we're a sovereign investor. But read on, right? There's more, there's more detail, just like that, just like the related code section you mentioned. The devil's in the detail as to whether you qualify. I think good points on that's at the investor level. You go down a you go down a bit into the different blockers, et cetera. Does that does that privilege continue down the chain? And when when might you lose that? Which Sam, I want to turn to you. When we're looking down to either, you know, you've got the controlled SBV is great, but we know that. Investors come in as consortiums. Sometimes they come in as LPs into funds. What happens at that next level within this ecosystem in terms of application of, of BEPS? What should folks be looking out for? Yeah. So, so as Eric mentioned, uh, I have to, you know, I have to give credit to the OECD. I think that as a general matter, they've done a pretty good job 
uh, compare, certainly compared to some of the other proposals that we've seen when thinking through some of these excluded associated entity issues. So the, the first thing is that there, there is an exclusion for a 95% owned uh, entity that's that's you know excluded and its activities are are ancillary or or whole code type uh, activities in nature. There's also another one that's an 85% exemption if it's you know owned by excluded entities, which as as Eric said would include government entities, but also international organizations, nonprofit entities, pension funds, and then investment funds themselves where they're an ultimate parent entity, as well as basically a REIT type exception, a real estate investment vehicle. So the 85% exception kicks in as well, and is a bit narrower if this blocker, for example, or lower tier entity in your structure is owned, and it's basically functioning as a whole co, all of the income is is essentially excluded dividends or um, excluded equity or gains and loss. You know, So, so what we would think of as a, as a common whole co type structure. Uh, the then that would be exempt as well. The 95 and 85% exemptions are very helpful, but they're not going to help everything that we're doing, right? So, for example, you know, let's say that we have a, a lower tier entity in our structure that's a co-investment piece, right? You're, you're going to end up having a, you know, you're going to end up having due diligence on your co-investor to, to make sure that that you might not have taxation in that in that entity that that co-investment vehicle joint ventures right we see a fair amount of that in these structures sometimes carve outs that are done through through um you know maybe partnerships or otherwise in the asset management space all of these are going to require more diligence on your your co-investor to understand the nature of the taxation of the the shared investment vehicle and uh, imagine two funds coming in together right you need to make sure that the other fund is good now that might be pretty straightforward a lot of the times but it's not necessarily you know just done and dusted it's going to add a another thing you're going to have to be looking at yeah could certainly imagine two funds coming together right i think oftentimes that's the common approach just to round this out, I would also say at the portfolio company level, you know, we might be good all the way down, right? But then that company itself might might exceed the threshold of for revenue and might have its own group that has has these, uh, you know, pillar two requirements, which I don't think was always, you know, obvious to folks. And then it's a matter of communication from the investor through the fund to the portfolio company or directly from investor if they disintermediate some of the funds, you know, some of the managers and own it themselves. Just because we're a, a, a sovereign investor, let's say, we don't necessarily extend that that exception to these rules down to a portfolio company that's active in, in business. So lo- lots of complexities there, investor fund, and then down to the portfolio company level for sure. So then we've covered sort of the geographic complexities, the the ecosystem complexities. Where to from here, guys? What what are some best practices, and what should should the funds uh, be looking out for the investors and managers? Sam, maybe we'll we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, sure. So you know, Dave, as you mentioned, there is a big issue for funds, right? They might be excluded, but they're going to really care about what's going on with their portfolio companies, their assets. So you know. Your diligence, you need to be start thinking about a 15% min rate on your on your your tax diligence. You need to be checking that the assumptions are correct on withholding tax. For example, in in the historic operating models on a go forward basis, assuming implemented as as you know contemplated, it, you know you need to be thinking as we just discussed about your structure with any co investors and the structural issues there. And then I think you need to also be thinking about your investment underpinning, underwriting, and saying, okay, 
you know, maybe this is an entity that is below the 750 and and will be. But as Eric mentioned, it's a four year look back test. Two of those years, if you start going over 750, you're you're within these rules. And we know that venture capital funds and private equity funds are, are buying generally for capital gain, capital growth. And so at what point, you know, if you're buying and you're like, OK, I'm, I'm good, I'm under these rules. You know, should you be testing and thinking about now I'm going to be coming into these rules or do I you know, need to be testing, you know, the, these different, you know, uh, uh, entities for when they do come in, are they going to be good? Uh, and so you have that constant, you know, horizon that you need to be looking at uh, on your uh, in, in your portfolio, uh, assuming these rules come in as as contemplated. Yeah, good, good, good advice there, Sam. Eric, any any final thoughts from yourself? Yeah, a number of the sovereigns that we're speaking with are running BEPS assessments on their portfolio. You know, starting with, are they in scope? Do they have constituent entities that are going to be in scope? And if that's the case, then what is going to be the approach to uh, filing a compliance and then determining what amounts of tax are at risk? And I think the real question for the sovereigns that we're speaking to here in the region relates to, is that tax at risk of being taken by somebody else? another jurisdiction, or is it one that's actually due in the country of the sovereign? And at the end of the day, these sovereigns are obviously, you know, part of the foreign government themselves. And so they're interested in ensuring that any tax revenue that's out there that could be potentially due uh, in their home jurisdiction isn't taken by another jurisdiction. So that's really the genesis of of what the assessment is being driven by. Yeah, thanks for that, Eric. And, and it is I, I, my observation as well around the globe seems to be the institutional investors that are maybe first movers in terms of just trying to understand, you know, uh, say a heat map where the exposure may be and where the rules are and getting ahead of, of some of the modeling. So we're seeing certainly seeing that in the in, from the investors. Great, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Sam. That was really great stuff. That's all the time we have for today. Just want to thank you both for joining me for this discussion and for the great insights you've shared. Back to our host to wrap this up. Dave, on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank you, Sam and Eric for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Please join us again next time and also email us with any questions you have about today's episode at tax at kpmg.com. We'd also love to hear from you with any suggestions you have for future episodes. Thanks for listening.